Welcome to the ACOFP Advocacy Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. My name is Mike Park, and I'm a partner with the law firm of Alston & Bird. I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I also serve as ACOFP's Director of Government Relations. Uh, I'm fortunate to be joined tonight by my several colleagues from Alston & Bird, uh, Mark Rader, Nalene Rubin, and Peter Eckridge. Uh, so uh, the purpose of uh, this hour will be to get you up to speed on what's been happening when it comes to healthcare during the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Uh, we're also going to highlight areas of particular relevance to family medicine. And then finally, uh, just show, showcase some areas where ACOFP has been active in, in federal advocacy. Uh, as you can see with this roadmap, uh, we'll start with congressional activity, looking at uh, the recently passed American Rescue Plan, uh, also uh, recently passed uh, Medicare sequestration reform. We'll talk about the ongoing uh, discussions on infrastructure proposals, and then uh, we'll wrap it up with what, what to expect for the balance of the year. Uh, we'll then move on to administration activity, particularly with the uh, incoming administration's regulatory freeze and issuance of a whole slew of executive orders. Um, you know, who, who's, we'll talk about who's in charge now when it comes to healthcare in the Biden administration. And then again, similar to what we're talking about with Congress, you know, what to expect from the administration. So moving on to congressional activity, uh, the, the biggest uh, piece of legislation that's passed so far during the 100 days of the Biden administration is the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. As you all know, it was, uh, it was enacted in early March. It's a $1.9 trillion package and it uh, passed uh, strictly along party lines. It, it, was, it just had uh, Democratic votes and, and no Republican participation. Uh, <clears throat> also uh, just wanted to note that uh, it was passed uh, by, by the Democratic majority through the use of the budget reconciliation process. Uh, so um, it has more relevance in the, or significance in the Senate uh, where it, this, this process allows for a fast-track legislative, uh, fast-track legislative process, and only requires a simple majority to advance legislation instead of the typical 60-vote uh, threshold. But just keep in mind that not everything is able to go into a reconciliation bill. Uh, the Senate has something that's called a bird rule, or the bird rule, which uh, requires that uh, provisions that are included has, have to have a budgetary uh, effect. If a provision doesn't have a budgetary effect, it's subject to a point of order and can be stripped for the, from the bill. So an example of that is uh, the minimum, minimum wage increase that was being discussed uh, during the American Rescue Plan. Uh, it was determined by the Senate parliamentarian uh, not to pass a bird rule, and so it was dropped from the bill. And the reason why I spend a little time with budget reconciliation is, as uh, Mark and Nalene uh, and Peter talk about uh, what's going on with infrastructure and, and what's in store for the balance of the year, we may, very, we may very well see budget reconciliation being used again. Um, <clears throat> another item to just point out or highlight is that provider relief and Medicare policy provisions are significantly more limited in the American Rescue Plan than in uh, previous COVID relief legislation like, like the CARES Act. So just, uh, just to highlight some of the key, uh, key provisions in, in the law, you know, there, there's funding for distributing vaccines, additional funding for testing and contact tracing, uh, funding for education, you know, trying to get schools to be able to open the doors again, um, another round of stimulus checks, as well as additional 
federal supplemental unemployment benefits. Also a number of tax credit increases, uh, the child tax credit, for example, as well as the earned income tax credit. Uh, also, there's additional uh, paycheck protection program funding. This is that program from the Small Business Administration for, for small businesses to be able to keep their doors open. Um, there's additional funding under the uh, American Rescue Plan Act, as well as an expanded definition of the types of organizations eligible for this funding. And then finally, there's a sig significant uh, amount of funding to uh, help uh, the airline and restaurant industries. Uh, looking more closely at some of these um, provisions, uh, when, when it comes to um, vaccine testing, you know, sequencing and supply chain provisions, you know, th this law uh, addresses all of these areas from you know, 7.5 7 billion for uh, vaccine distribution optimization efforts, uh, 6 billion for, for uh, to strengthen the supply chain uh, going to the Department of Health and Human Service, Services as well as uh, BARDA. Uh, you know, additional funding for testing, contact tracing, uh, uh, PPE for frontline workers, as well as uh, trying to uh, uh, provide funding to improve uh, isolation and quarantine measures in communities, as well as uh, additional funding for CDC data modernization and forecasting. Uh, there's additional money for genome sequencing research on, on the coronavirus, as well as uh, additional funding to enhance the Defense Production Act uh, in order to boost medical supplies so that we're less likely that to have shortages in the event of additional surges. Uh, there are also a number of workforce, workforce provisions as well as provisions uh, designed to target uh, specific communities. Uh, for example, uh, uh, for relief for frontline workers serving communities of color as well as underserved populations, you know, there's additional funding for community health centers. Uh, there's a, more funding for the National Health Service Corps, as well as the Nurse Corps Loan Repayment Program. And there's more funding for the Teaching Health Center GME program. Uh, there's also additional uh, funding for state and local public health departments, as well as uh, uh, the Medical Reserve Corps under HHS. And then finally, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's funding for veterans, uh, providing relief to waive co-pays and expand healthcare services uh, such as telehealth and, and mental health services. Uh, moving on, uh, there are, uh, uh, when it comes to healthcare provisions, a significant amount of the American Rescue Plan Act uh, focuses on coverage to ensure that uh, Americans have some type of healthcare coverage during the pandemic. And you see this, you see a lot of provisions both impacting the private market as well as federal health programs. So first, uh, looking at private insurance provisions, uh, there are, are COBRA subsidies uh, for, to ensure uh, coverage is available, as well as waiving premiums 100% uh, through next fall for individuals who had employer-sponsored coverage and were uh, laid off or furloughed or had a reduction in hours because of the pandemic. And um, this is being applied retroactively for uh, folks who uh, experienced uh, these impacts earlier. And then finally, there are some uh, some tax relief uh, to ensure that these COBRA subsidies aren't counted as uh, income to the individual who receives them. Uh, looking at uh, additional private market provisions uh, when it comes to the ACA marketplace, you know, uh, the, the American Rescue Plan Act provides the largest health insurance uh, expansion since the ACA. Uh, you, you see almost $25 billion in increased subsidies to end the subsidy cliff. As you know, um, 
uh, before the uh, before this law, uh, federal subsidies ended at 400% of the federal poverty level. So uh, the American Rescue Plan uh, ends this subsidy cliff. Uh, also, uh, there, it imposes limits on how much uh, of an individual's income or a household's income is paid towards an ACA uh, qualified health plan. So it's limited to 8.5% uh, through the end of 2022. Uh, there are also uh, additional provisions here, uh, you know, cost sharing support for unemployed Americans in a qualified health plan, as well as uh, uh, additional, um, uh, additional funding uh, to uh, boost enrollment in, in these uh, marketplaces. Uh, moving on to, to the federal uh, side of healthcare coverage, uh, going to specifically to the Medicare program, or uh, Medicaid, excuse me. Uh, there are a, a significant number of provisions impacting Medicaid. Uh, first, looking at uh, expanding Medicaid benefits. Uh, there's a clarification that the vaccines and the administration of the vaccines are supposed to be covered under Medicaid and CHIP without cost sharing for enrollees. And then states uh, are able to get a 100% federal matching funds for this coverage. Uh, states also have an option under this law to pro provide uh, COVID-19 treatment services without cost sharing for individuals uh, who are, who are uh, uninsured. And then uh, there, there is uh, increased funding to states available uh, for providing uh, Medicaid home and community-based services. Uh, some additional uh, federal incentives are uh, for providing mobile crisis intervention services. There, there's increased federal funding available for that. And then there is funding for uh, state strike teams to be deployed at Medicaid certified nursing facilities with COVID or uh, suspected cases. Uh, moving on to some coverage provisions in Medicaid under the law. I, I think that the, uh, when, when it comes to coverage in Medicaid, the provision that has gotten the most attention is this, this incentive um, for the 12 states that still haven't expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act to expand Medicaid now. And what this provision would do would be uh, to give a 5% increase for two years to any state uh, that, that uh, becomes a Medicaid expansion state. So um, currently uh, Medicaid expansion states get a 90% federal match uh, for this expansion population. So with this 5% increase, uh, the, these uh, 12 states would, would get a total of 95% in federal matching funds for, for two years. Also, this 5% uh, increase would apply to the entire uh, uh, Medicaid population, not, not, just the, uh, um, not, not just the expansion population. Uh, another, another area for expanded coverage is uh, states can elect to uh, provide postpartum coverage for women uh, from the current 60 days to uh, a full year. Uh, uh, just uh, there, there is one condition, though, that if a state does take this up, uh, a, a enrollee's benefits has to be the full state plan benefits rather than just a, a limited uh, pregnancy and postpartum uh, type of benefit. And then there are uh, several other provisions uh, of note. Uh, uh, the first one being that uh, the law elim eliminates the cap on the amount of prescription drug rebates uh, manufacturers pay to Medicaid. So. Um, you know, the, the, uh, these rebates can be uh, increased. Um, there's also a 100% federal match from the federal government for two years uh, for services provided through the urban Indian and native Hawaiian health organizations and systems. And then there's a technical <clears throat> uh, provision that ensure that uh, states uh, 
receive the same amount of disproportionate share hospital uh, payment allotments uh, that they would have received uh, without um, uh, this federal relief. Uh, just a couple other areas we want to highlight in the law. Uh, similar to the provider relief fund, uh, there's an additional uh, $8.5 billion specifically for rural hospitals and, and medical facilities. Um, they, actually, it's a much uh, vaguer um, uh, terminology that's being used. They, they talk about Medicare or Medicaid enrolled rural providers or suppliers. So conceivable, conceivably, uh, uh, clinicians could fit under this definition. Uh, the requirements largely uh, mirror the provider relief fund requirements in, in previous uh, COVID-19 legislation. Um, all we know so far is that eligible entities must submit an application uh, that includes a uh, statement uh, with a justification of need for, for this uh, 8.5 billion or part of this $8.5 billion. And so uh, it's still up in the air how this will be implemented. Uh, we haven't seen any HHS, HHS guidance issued yet on, on this uh, uh, funding pot. Uh, there's also $500 million to the uh, US Department of Agriculture uh, for the establishment of an emergency pilot program uh, for rural development. And this is supposed to be uh, handed out within 150 days of enactment. Uh, these are just uh, grants uh, that, that uh, help um, you know, stakeholders in, in healthcare with um, various uh, needs related to COVID. And then these stakeholders would be uh, public bodies, nonprofit corporations, and then federally uh, recognized Indian tribes in rural areas. Uh, and then finally, just uh, wanted to highlight some uh, mental health and substance abuse disorder provisions. Uh, you know, th there's additional uh, $1.5 billion for the prevention and treatment of substance abuse and other uh, substance abuse treatment programs, and then a, a series of grants uh, provided to uh, uh, for, for workforce training uh, and for treatment, as well as for providers uh, in order to promote and assist uh, with, with mental health and substance abuse treatment during the pandemic. And then we, we just wanted to uh, highlight that uh, you know, this law, the American Rescue Plan Act, aligns with a number of uh, ACOP's major policy priorities. Now, again, uh, you know, this law has a uh, limited direct impact on, on, the, uh, uh, on providers, but uh, there, there are provisions that are, that are consistent with uh, the association's uh, uh, priorities. Uh, the first and foremost, protecting patients during the COVID pandemic. Uh, you see here, uh, as I mentioned before, a number of provisions to uh, ensure coverage for, for uh, individuals, especially those uh, uh, without insurance or, or, or who are financially vulnerable. Um, the second area uh, that are, that's identified as an ACOP priority is addressing the family physician shortage. And as I mentioned, there is funding for uh, a number of programs we have supported uh, in the past, including the National Health Service Corps, as well as uh, the Teaching Health, uh, Health Center GME program. And then finally, a focus on vulnerable populations and addressing racial disparities. And uh, again, uh, we, we see this increased funding for community health centers, as well as uh, you know, programs or programmatic changes under Medicaid uh, to ensure vulnerable populations uh, receive care, and then uh, grants uh, such as for HRSA and SAMHSA to help those with 
mental health uh, disorders as well as substance abuse disorders. Uh, just a couple of slides on the Medicare sequestration moratorium extension that uh, was subsequently passed on, uh, and enacted on April 14th. Uh, there are basically two budget control uh, mechanisms that you're going to be hearing a lot about. Uh, the first, and uh, ACOP has been very active in advocacy on, is the Budget Control Act of 2011. Uh, you might recall the, the super committee that was supposed to uh, come up uh, with, with ways to reduce federal spending and, and address the deficit uh, pursuant to the Budget Control Act. Uh, but as a result of not being able to come up with an agreement, um, these automatic spending cuts uh, for Medicare, it's 2%, uh, were triggered and are to last for the foreseeable future. Uh, in the CARES Act, uh, this 2% cut was suspended uh, uh, for a limited period of time. And then on April 14th, it was ex this uh, moratorium was extended again through uh, the balance of 2021. A second statutory budget control mechanism is a statutory pay-as-you-go act of 2010. And th this basically requires that any legislation that passes Congress uh, has to be offset. And, and so if it is not offset, then uh, a, a, a sequester under statutory pay-go is, is uh, implemented. And for this law, uh, Medicare cuts are limited to 4%. Uh, so um, HR 1868, which uh, passed on April 14th, addressed the 2% cut, but it didn't address the 4% cut. Uh, this 4% cut, if it does go into effect, would happen sometime in early 2022. Uh, it can be waived by Congress, but it hasn't happened yet. So um, what we're looking at is a possible cliff at the end of 2021. Uh, the current moratorium on the 2% cut is supposed to go through the end of the year. So January 1st, unless it's extended again, uh, this 2% cut will, uh, will uh, go into effect. Uh, and if uh, the 4% cut is not waived by Congress, um, that could go into effect uh, around the same time. So uh, they, are, they, they can be applied concurrently. So the cliff that we could be looking at in uh, 2022 would be a total of 6% uh, Medicare cut. And so just a recap on, on what ACOFP has been doing to address the 2% cut. Um, the, we engaged in a letter writing campaign uh, to support legislation that would extend the sequester moratorium uh, through the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, although the law that ultimately was enacted uh, uh, extended the moratorium uh, only through the end of the year, I, you know, it's clear that uh, Congress um, responded to not only ACOP, but other provider groups uh, that raised concerns that you know, uh, implementing a, a sequestration of 2% during a pandemic is not, uh, is not appropriate in the near term. And with that, I'll turn it over to Mark to talk about uh, what's going on right now with infrastructure. Thanks, Mike, appreciate it. Um, so yeah, so Mike was talking about uh, you know, the $1.9 trillion plan before that. And of course, um, the president, one of his, uh, President Biden, one of his major initiatives is, uh, is to uh, get the economy back and moving again. Uh, and to uh, ensure that we sort of get back to where we were or better. And so uh, he has come out with, uh, with a couple of, um, uh, a couple of uh, big plans here in the last few weeks, the first of which is the American Jobs Plan. And uh, this is, you know, two and a half trillion dollars. Uh, so just to give you an idea about how much that is, and of course the 1.9 trillion before that, um, 
those two those two plans alone would be about the size of what the the regular federal budget is each year. So about uh, the, before COVID, the the federal budget was about four uh, four and a half trillion dollars, and that includes Medicare, Medicaid, and um, and Social Security, as well as then you know defense and all the uh, all the discretionary spending and things like that. So we're dealing with uh, with some pretty large numbers here, and uh, and so there's a lot of this is going into um, uh, into uh, various infrastructure programs. Uh, and then the first type of infrastructure is sort of the, your more traditional uh, infrastructure. Um, you see a lot uh, of this going into almost a quarter of it going into transportation infrastructure. Um, then, of course, into uh, water infrastructure. Um, uh, some of that is also to replace lead pipes and things like that. Um, uh, 100 billion going into digital infrastructure of which broadband access is a major component of that. And that's, that's of course, for uh, both for uh, job and educational uh, reasons, but also for the advancement of telehealth, which, uh, as you all know all too well, has been uh, so important during, uh, during the public health emergency uh, and was a, a big, uh, has been a big um, uh, uh, issue of uh, discussion in Congress and in the administration uh, in terms of uh, what to do with that in the, in the longer term. Um, and so uh, $100 billion towards that is, uh, is considered a big down payment. Uh, I, I think everybody recognizes that that would be, again, these are over 10 years, uh, these dollars here um, uh, for, some, for some of the programs. And so that would take, uh, you know, that would be a long build out uh, for, for broadband access. Um, 100 billion is also for energy and uh, power and energy infrastructure. Uh, and uh, that uh, is, is more focused towards uh, a long-term um, democratic priority, which of course is green energy, uh, and uh, to sort of trans uh, transform the uh, the U.S. Uh, power and power grid to um, uh, to a more um, green um, version of itself, uh, and then um, lots of uh, lots of money as well, 213 billion to uh, towards uh, housing, including uh, public housing. Um, and uh, and for sustainable housing, also to turn some of that housing into more green housing, um, uh, and uh, as well as uh, for for many in terms of voucher programs and things like that that go to existing um, existing uh, programs for law, for um, for affordable housing, but also to new ones. Uh, and this is uh, primarily in in urban areas, but there's also some for uh, for rural and other districts. Um, and finally. Um, uh, more than $180 billion um, going into um, research and development um, and $300 billion for manufacturers and small business. And so for a lot of this, this is also going to sort of retrofitting uh, existing, um, existing plants uh, to have uh, more, um, more efficient uh, processes to be able to keep, compete with the rest of the world uh, and do it in a, in a greener way to bring some back some of the manufacturing uh, to uh, to the U.S. That's also going to be a big discussion as we move forward here, uh, particularly in the uh, in the healthcare supply chain um, and uh, many different viewpoints on how that should be done. But a lot of that is being done on a very bipartisan basis, in both in the House and the Senate, to try to get that uh, get that uh, accomplished. So, in addition to what we were uh, previously talking about, there is some money that goes towards uh, towards healthcare uh, provisions, but not not uh, not a ton in terms of in the, in the traditional uh, areas. But there is 18 billion dollars for for the VA hospitals, um, and then 400 billion in uh, into what the uh, the president uh, deems as the care economy infrastructure, uh, and this goes towards um, towards extending um, uh, access to home and community uh, community based services. 
uh, particularly uh, under Medicaid. Uh, and you know, a lot of um, a lot was tried to be done uh, under the Affordable Care Act on sort of long on the long-term care crisis. And there was an important provision put in the Affordable Care Act, but it, it really didn't um, didn't have any teeth to it. So there was really no funding. You know, $400 billion obviously is a big down payment here in this proposal to get that underway. Part of that is to extend the Money, uh, money Follows the Person demonstration program, which helps, um, helps uh, Medicaid beneficiaries move from institutions uh, to community living. And then more on, on this human infrastructure element, uh, and this is in the American Families Plan. So this is now beyond the American Jobs Plan, and this is an additional $1.8 trillion um, that, would, uh, that would go towards, again, human infrastructure. Uh, and this is uh, really uh, more sort of uh, along uh, social, social programs and educational programs and things, uh, and things like that. Uh, and so you have universal preschool um, for three and four-year-old children, two years of free community college um, for, uh, for those who qualify, um, investments, child care, um, paid uh, national uh, uh, paid and medical leave program. So obviously there are, there are a number of the states have current jurisdiction over this right now. This would sort of pull this into a a national federal program. Uh, it would be 12 weeks. Uh, there's not a lot of details right now in this in the American Families Plan in general. And, uh, and so we're not really sure exactly how this national uh, paid medical leave program would work, but it would likely likely work under, um, uh, be paid for by, by taxes, uh, new taxes, and, um, and would probably cost uh, about $225 billion is what they're estimating right now. And would have a relatively broad, um, uh, broad application uh, in terms of, you know, so it would be uh, for medical leave and for birth of a new child, for illnesses and, and other things. And so it's uh, 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 a little bit more expansive and, and again, uh, takes us away from sort of a state program and becomes a, a national, national program. There's also uh, increased funding for uh, an expansion of uh, traditional nutrition programs, EBT, school lunch, SNAP, which used to be, uh, of course, food stamps. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, a, a, a very large uh, tax credits for, um, for the sort of middle income families um, and making permanent some of the, um, some of the reductions to uh, ACA plan premiums. And, um, and then a lot of this is paid for with new taxes um, on, on the wealthy uh, and on corporations, about 1.5 trillion. That's, uh, that, of, that of course is a, a big sticking point right now in sort of negotiation um, uh, even before we've really started, uh, you know, official legislative plans right now, but between the um, between the Republicans and and the President and the Democrats in terms of um, what rate some of those things should be in terms of like things like the uh, the corporate tax um, the corporate tax rate, which was lowered under the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, during the during the Trump presidency, and so some of those would uh, uh, a lot of those uh, tax provisions would then change. So again, $1.8 trillion just for, for this program. Um, a lot of this goes, this goes through a, a number of different committees of jurisdiction um, uh, on the Senate Finance Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. Those are the two tax writings committee on the, on the Senate and House side. Um, and, uh, and so they, uh, you know, almost half of this, uh, uh, this bill would go through that committee of jurisdiction. Then there's a lot of this that actually goes through uh, the traditional um, funding uh, mechanisms through appropriations, through discretionary funding. Uh, so there is a mix of this, and and uh, and again, about uh, most of it currently, it would be would be offset by those by those tax increases. 
The GOP, as I said before, has been trying to counter uh, counteroffer, and they had, uh, of course, have done counteroffers as Mike had said before on the on the 1.9 trillion dollar program um, earlier uh, this year in March that was that was passed, but uh, it was rejected uh, by and large, and uh, and uh, the uh, the president and the Democrats were were able really to stick to sort of their their overall uh, projected number, which they were trying to hit of 1.9 trillion. Um, here, once again, the Republicans come in. Um, uh, sort of lowballing, uh, and uh, and so have a 568 um, billion dollar proposal, which would which would mostly stick to what we what we would call traditional uh, infrastructure projects, uh, roads, bridges, airports, um, uh, rail, um, and and uh, ports, uh, things like that. So you know, if in terms of you know traditional infrastructure, uh, 568 billion is probably um, you know, about one and a half times as much as, as maybe, or, you know, one or one and a half times as much as a traditional five-year funding of, uh, of, a, of a highway bill would be. So this is over and above all that existing spending uh, that, that you would typically get. And that's, again, for, for both these proposals by, by both the president and the Republicans. And so um, now we go into, I'm going to hand this over to my colleague, uh, Nalene, and uh, Nalene's going to talk more about sort of what we can expect uh, for all this through, uh, through negotiations with uh, the House, the Senate, and the, uh, and the President and such. Great. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I, I, I was just sitting here thinking I maybe got the hardest part of this presentation because <laughs> what, what we've heard up until now is all that which has happened, whereas this next part is a little bit of the crystal ball part. But, you know, if there's one thing you can depend upon in D.C. is, you know, there's there's a little bit of a cadence, even when it's been as, um, you know, uh, unique of a year as it's been or, you know, more than a year at this point um, in terms of how Congress is going to approach uh, these next steps. You know, so Biden has laid out the two plans that Mark uh, just outlined, both on the traditional uh, you know, physical infrastructure, the roads and bridges, as well as um, on the what Biden calls the human infrastructure, as Mark mentioned, that's more the education, childcare, with a teeny bit of healthcare um, focus. And now that those uh, proposals are out, it's the Congress is basically off to the races. Where, um, similar to what we've seen for some other packages, the House is sort of taking the lead in terms of starting to do legislative hearings on a on a, on a range of pieces, whether again it's on the physical infrastructure side or on you know, the education side or on the healthcare side. And, you know, one thing you may have read in the news, um, at least from a congressional democratic perspective, um, you know, there was a lot of disappointment, particularly among the more progressive Democrats that Biden didn't go bigger on the healthcare pieces. You know, they wanted to see um, pretty aggressive uh, drug pricing and drug affordability uh, provisions in the Biden package. These are, you know, similar to ideas the House Democrats in particular have had out there, um, at least since the last Congress, if not longer. Um, they also want to see even bigger and bolder on ACA or potentially Medicare changes. You know, we've all heard over the last, you know, leading up to the election through when Biden was elected, um, a question about would public option, um, you know, be something that was uh, proposed or would, um, you know, big changes to Medicare, like lowering the eligibility age to age 60 or even lower to 55 or adding things like dental and vision coverage, would those things be included in what the president laid out? And very interestingly uh, to Democrats, you know, right up until a few weeks before Biden put out his second infrastructure, again, the human infrastructure proposal, uh, you know, I think the conventional wisdom was he was going to go big on some of those things. Um, but then as it got closer, um, he chose not to. And so now, um, you know, against, against much, um, you know, recommend, recommendations from the congressional Democrats. And so now 
even though Biden didn't put some of those things um, in his proposals, the congressional Democrats, particularly on the House side, are going to march forward. So we see as soon as tomorrow, um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee is um, having a legislative hearing, which is step one in their process, a legislative markup would come second, uh, where they're going to consider a range um, of uh, drug pricing bills. Um, and I think most expect that, that that package of bills will get through the you know, Democratic-led House um, sometime be before you know, the end of the summer. Uh, likewise, we saw a few weeks ago um, uh, the key committees also considered um, a range of ACA expansion um, and Medicaid expansion uh, proposals. Again, the expectation is that those ideas will largely get through the House. And you know, stepping back, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi has told uh, the, the chair people in the House uh, that they that she would like to see infrastructure, however that ends up being defined, whether it's just roads and bridges more hopefully from the democratic perspective if it also um, includes the more human infrastructure side and even more hopeful if it could include some of these drug and coverage um, ideas that those collectively will be out of the house chamber voted out by july 4th that's the stated goal um with then once that's done then the senate will figure out what they're going to do with all that and of course the, the dynamics in the senate the 50 50 senate um, with a lot more moderate democrats there the calculation is very different um, and so on all of this, on all of these pieces, it, it, it could kind of go either way, but I think the conventional wisdom is, is that if you had to bet most likely on both the drug pieces as well as the coverage, it's going to end up a smaller package of items realistically in terms of what can get through the Senate. However, if all of a sudden the president were to, to decide that there's something amongst all of that, whether it's on the drug pricing side, um, or if he decides to really throw his weight behind, for example, adding dental and vision coverage to Medicare, that could shift the dynamic. And that's not out of the realm of possibility over the summer that that could happen. Um, but basically where we're gonna be watching all of this is really between now and the typical August recess where again, hopefully the house will get out, hopefully again from the Democratic perspective, they'll get most of this out of the house chamber by July 4th. And then you know that will give the Senate more time to continue thinking about things with potentially looking um, towards September to um, then move forward from there. Um, in the meantime, while all of this infrastructure related um, work is happening, the annual appropriations process is starting to be underway, which is a little bit strange in the sense that you may know um, so far, President Biden has only put out what is called a skinny budget, which is sort of a high level outline of his budget. Um, he has not put out his full budget and full budget detail yet. Um, that is expected any time. People were saying it could come as soon as this week, but it could end up being later May. It's sort of, you know, it's a mystery when these things like a, waiting for a baby to be born. And so folks are waiting on that budget process, you know, to figure out well, how do you fill in the blanks just for the, you know, the upcoming fiscal year. Um, and you may have heard that as part of this, um, uh, there is a new effort underway, which is sort of a oldie but goodie in, in a sense of bringing back so-called earmarks, which have a new name of community project funding. And this is something that would allow um, uh, sort of district or state specific uh, funding that individual members could request um, to be included in the appropriations process. And the rules about how this will look, um, I think are still getting um, figured out. But I think the general thinking, at least from the house perspective is that each member could ultimately maybe get one community project or something that equals maybe a million dollars and split it up a couple different ways. But this is the kind of thing that if you have a sort of narrow, uh, you know, very community specific projects you want to put forward, this would be the vehicle to think about doing that. And that process is underway. In addition to all these things uh, and some of the other things that um, Mike, I think, touched on earlier, you know, 
we'll also see what happens on both sequestration and um, the PAYGO, the 4% cuts that Mike um, uh, spoke about. You know, unfortunately for Congress, they don't do anything until they have a deadline and they're facing that deadline. Um, I think the conventional wisdom on Medicare sequestration or at least the hope is that, you know, it'll, it'd be awfully hard to let any of these cuts go into place while the public health emergency is still happening. Now we all of course hope uh, the pandemic is behind us by the end of the year. Um, however, if Biden continues to keep the PhD in place, the public health emergency, that would make it at least in my mind, less likely that the sequestration cuts would be allowed to happen. Um, at the same time, the statutory PAYGO cuts, and I'll let others maybe chime in on their perspective on this one, but I think regardless of the pandemic, I think the thought is that that 4% uh, cut will, will ultimately be um, waived and that those cuts will not go into effect. Again, you can't ever bank on a hope, but that that is the general expectation that's similar to, to the past when there's been PAYGO um, violations as they're called, uh, ultimately do, they do get waived. And I think, you know, given what healthcare providers have just dealt with over the last year and the financial situation, it, it doesn't make logical sense to cut healthcare providers while at the same time, Congress is doing so much work to give more resources. So I think the thinking is these will go away, but it'll probably be down to the, you know, the wire and it'll happen on Christmas Eve. So that's in terms of outlook on that one. Um, just moving through these other things quickly. Um, I know that you all, um, care a lot about the evaluation and management um, changes that were in the physician fee schedule uh, recently, um, and also the 3.75% um, bump that happened um, in legislation at the end of last year. You know, the jury's still out on whether this will be um, extended. Um, I think, you know, and it, it, it sort of interplays with the Medicare sequestration and the statutory pay go that, you know, there's no scenario where Congress is going to allow providers to, to face a two plus a four plus a plus what would seem like another 3.75 hit all at the same time. So I think there will be a, a serious look at this. However, um, I do think when this change was made, it was meant to be um, transitional and to kind of smooth the edges of that policy. So if I had to bet this one, I think has the least hope of, of being extended, where, whereas sequestration and paygo um, are more likely to be addressed, at least from my perspective. But this is one where, you know, folks will continue to focus on it for sure. Um, while all of these uh, things are happening, you know, at the same time, in addition to the infrastructure work and the appropriations work, you know, Congress is doing sort of uh, kind of back to normal in the sense of uh, looking into issues that may fit into one of these broader efforts or may not. For example, um, there are committee hearings in both chambers related to the ongoing opioid crisis and what more to do on that front. Um, there's also hearings. Um, there was one last week in the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, there's likely to be one in the Senate um, in the next couple of weeks as it relates to telehealth. There's a lot of excitement um, on the outside as well as on Capitol Hill about how well telehealth has worked. And so um, policymakers are taking a serious look at how can this some of this stay in place? What else should be changed? How can we make this work going forward? Because a lot of ground was was made on the telehealth front. And so there's a real bipartisan, I would say, effort on, on, on that issue. Also, um, you know, weaving through all, at least particularly from the Democratic perspective, uh, any legislation that's getting considered, they are trying to look at it through a lens of um, health equity and health disparities. So you will see that as a theme uh, on everything that gets looked at this year. And the question being asked of what does this policy do to address those issues or advance, you know, those issues. Um, you know, la lastly, um, I, we talked briefly about public option. Um, you know, that is an issue that uh, particularly progressive Democrats are still very focused on. Um, however, it is very um, pivotal that Biden did not put that in his plans thus far. I think, you know, there are bills already introduced in Congress, um, again, from Democrats on the public option. 
Uh, there will be continued talk on that, but I think the conventional wisdom is that until Biden puts his focus and weight on that, and frankly, with all the other stuff he's trying to do on infrastructure and all these other really important things, it's feeling like that issue is slipping um, down the priority list. And then lastly, again, on the Medicare expansions, um, you know, though if all of a sudden the drug pricing legislation were to take off and lots of money was raised through that, you could see um, some changes on Medicare, again, less scary ones in some ways around dental and vision coverage, maybe getting considered. Um, but again, uh, the focus on these have sort of fallen a little bit down the list for now, unless Biden were to really um, increase the volume on any of these ideas. So that's the general outlook. The next few months between May and August are going to be very um, informative and will really dictate sort of what can really get done between now and the end of the year, because a lot of groundwork needs to be laid and, and decisions need to be made on kind of all of these issues. Um, I think, Mark, I'm turning it back to you um, to give a little other feedback yeah. potentially. Just, just a little bit uh, in terms of where sort of Republicans will find themselves in all this. We're going to move quickly over to uh, to Peter, um, but you know Republicans are sort of stuck here. They're they're in the minority. Uh, they don't have the presidency, and and so they're trying to find a place where they can where they can act. Um, they uh, you know these are these are very very large bills, uh, very transformational uh, in a lot of ways, and so uh, they're going to find it difficult to find places where they can compromise. They're going to try to work, I think, within the committee uh, process to to make changes where they can. And uh, there's a lot of money out there, as, as we said before, and they would like to get some of that for, for their, um, uh, for their uh, districts as well and for their states. But at the same time, uh, it's sort of anathema to their, uh, to their viewpoint of, of, of what the federal government should be doing. So in the end, they're probably going to end up voting against uh, pretty much everything. You know, I think we'll, we'll probably have about 95 to 99% of Republicans voting against uh, these bills in, in the end. Um, and so uh, they're going to really have to pick and choose regarding the the Medicare um, issues that that uh, that Lillian was talking about. You know, uh, Republicans are generally going to try to you know have been trying to move uh, beneficiaries into Medicare Advantage over the years. And so instead of uh, you know adding dental, vision, and hearing and such, you know, they'd rather push the, them into into those plans where they can have the the option of those things. Uh, so, but uh, you know they're. They're, the, the numbers aren't working for them right now. And so uh, it's, you know, they're gonna have to sort of pick and choose their battles uh, uh, at present time, but it's gonna be a long, um, a long process, uh, probably into uh, September, October. And so we'll have to see how things go. Um, and I'm gonna hand it over there uh, to Peter. So I'm gonna quickly run through this. There's been a lot of activity in the past uh, 100 days for the Biden White House. Uh, the first notable action that uh, President Biden practically did as soon as he was inaugurated was he uh, put a put a freeze on all of the uh, all the regulatory activity that was coming out uh, basically stopping anything that was coming from the Trump administration uh, this is pretty typical that to do for for a new president to come in but uh, it's really just to give him the time to stop review what was the review was happening and now we're kind of starting to see the uh, his regulatory action going forward and other things that uh, that had that we have been noticing too is that uh, Biden, the Biden administration has been started to rescind some Trump era Medicaid waivers, um, you know, like work requirements and state plan amendments. Uh, the big one that made the news has been stopping the uh, Texas 1115 waiver that was revoked on April 16th, and that was has caused some issues for uh, the nomination of the CMS uh, head. But we are already seeing that happen in the first hundred days. And then, so we just want to make sure we can focus. A lot of activity has been kind of high. It doesn't really seem like it. You know, how it really focuses on primary care. But 
what one model that is going to keep on going forward on, in the CMMI is a primary care first model. This did start in uh, January 2020. Um, and so they are, the Biden administration is going to keep it going. Um, I, I'm not going to read through all of this, but this primary care follow, primary care first model has been a very exciting model where they're, they're testing out these um, very um, exciting new uh, uh, primary care delivery and uh, trying to align different different payers, making sure that they can really pay, really provide high quality care while also reducing costs. Uh, notably, the first cohort is already going, but the second cohort, so just basically the second round, I guess, of, of new people that can join, the application period is open for that. Um, and if you have more information, if you're more interested in that, we're happy to provide more information for you on that. And then, so I'm sure you guys all remember this, but the first, you know, one of the first things with Biden did, he came in, froze the, froze the, froze all the uh, administrative activity that was happening. Um, since it takes time to do rules, he took his action by doing a lot of executive orders. Uh, the big ones that we, that were came out that were relevant for you all was, you know, the executive order ensuring an equitable pandemic response and recovery, uh, looking at the supply chain, public health supply chains, making sure that everything was. Uh, get to everything with the power that he could do it from the administration to, to get to the providers. Um, there is also, you know, the establishing of the COVID-19 pandemic testing board um, and then and working towards uh, building up the healthcare workforce for COVID-19. And then he also, there was also a couple of stuff on data-driven responses for COVID-19 and how they can use uh, data to better prepare for this uh, pandemic and other pandemics. And Nalene, I'm going to quickly flip it to you to give your, to have you give your perspective on the nomination. Yeah, just really quickly on this. Well, as you can see on this chart, this outlines um, some of the key positions at HHS and where and outside of HHS, well, I guess here, yep, all HHS, sorry, um, and where they stand in terms of the confirmation process. The good news is, is the sort of top brass, starting with Secretary Becerra, are in place, as well as his deputy, uh, Andrew Palm. Uh, she's moved through uh, the Senate committee part of the process and is most likely uh, folks think will be confirmed by the full Senate, hopefully by the end of next week. So having her in place will also be helpful. Um, you also saw, of course, very early on, they appointed Dr. Walensky at CDC. Um, you know, on here, I guess the ones just to pay most attention to, as um, Peter referenced a second ago, the CMS administrator nominee, Chiquita Brooks-Lashore, um, is still not through the process, uh, but hopefully will be by the end of May. Um, noteworthy, uh, the FDA commissioner, that is a spot that has had some controversy around it that is yet to be resolved. So the timing around um, who will be chosen for that is still uh, getting worked out. And then interestingly, um, for the Hearst administrator, which I would imagine also matters to all of you, um, has not been identified yet. So that's one that we're watching closely. Um, but the team is starting to fill out, which is good news, but it's, you know, it can't happen fast enough given all the work um, that's underway. So I'll turn it back to the next person. Thanks, Celine. And so uh, the big, you know, exciting thing to look forward to too is the Medicare payment rules. Um, we've already had uh, the first big one that came out last week. That is the inpatient perspective payment rule. Uh, this, you know, as as the as the name would would allude to, it is inpatient payment policy that it, that, that it covers. Um, but interestingly, this year it does have the the rule um, addressing payment policies um, for. Uh, that had to do with distributing residency slots in rural areas and healthcare professional shortage areas. So that is something that has also been a major uh, ACUFP priority. So we're, we are planning on um, doing some work on that uh, policy in support of it. Um, also looking forward to this summer uh, is the physician fee schedule. 
proposed rule uh, that you know obviously has to do with payment for uh, providers and physicians. Um, last year, as we kind of talked about earlier in this presentation, that is where they had this ENM evaluation bump that was first proposed. Uh, we're kind of we are expecting that this year they're going to do another. They're going to be focusing on that again, which has been a very important issue for us, as we can also tell from the poll question. And then uh, the other major payment rule is going to be the outpatient hospital, the outpatient hospital payment rule. It's obvious for out, outpatient payment policies. And uh, this one, you know, historically we have we have followed this and tracked this for ACOFP, and, and a lot of times they'll have. You know, last year, for example, they had issues on physician supervision, and that we have been very active on uh, weighing in on those. And so, what to expect? We do expect there's going to be a lot of activity. Uh, you know, obviously, President Biden was a vice president when ACA was passed, so he's very so something he's very um, focused on. We expect there's going to be more uh, activity at administrative activity on that. There's already been a special enrollment period announced for ACA plans. Uh, there's also going to, we also are expecting some implementation of the surprise billing legislation that was what passed uh, last, late last year, um, you know, to protect patients from, uh, you know, balance billing or, or big, uh, big care that they couldn't plan for. Also, like, like the legislative process, we're expecting that there's going to be a huge theme on health equity. Um, I think that's going to be kind of running through almost all of the payment rules. And then, um, you know, the other thing that we're just going to kind of see there probably just be, you know, just kind of ticking off the, uh, the sheet is going to be making sure that the public health emergency status maintains throughout 2021. Uh, it's a little technical, but that's important because that's what keeps the telehealth um, you know, flexibilities and other flexibilities tied to the public health emergency. Um, and, then and then the last thing that we're, you know, that we've been working on is the HIPAA modifications uh, that to, to help support value-based payments. They made their proposing some rules to um, to change to change those some of those technical rules, and uh, we actually ACFP has submitted a comment um, to HHS on that. Uh, we we will uh, be keeping you posted on additional developments, especially uh, for an interesting year that this is uh, probably going to be. Uh, you can always uh, you know be in the loop uh, by uh, you know the weekly uh, uh, the uh, view from, from, from the Hill uh, article that, that uh, we put together, and, as well as uh, we're finding other uh, ways to get the message out via uh, podcasts or, or blog posts as well. The ACOP Advocacy Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOP, please visit www.acofp.org. Curious about what other advocacy initiatives ACOFP is undertaking? Visit www.acofp.org and look under the Resources tab to locate Advocacy, where you will find comment letters, position statements, advocacy updates, and other webinars and podcasts.